uh, as Liam mentioned, we, uh, we're Bible-believing people and uh, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God and we believe the Bible to be um, the Lord's will expounded for us. And, and today we're going to talk about just a tiny little simple topic um, called the nature of God. Just, we might scrape the surface. Um, but I'll get you to turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 1, just uh, while we're setting the scene here. But before we, we read anything from Hebrews, I just want you to have a think for a moment, and I'm going to give you a moment, just want you to have a think for a moment about the kinds of, wo- kinds of words and concepts that you associate with God the Father. So think about all of the uh, all of the, the mental perceptions that you have of God the Father and uh, and how how He's depicted in the Word and uh, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. So just have a think for a minute. I don't want you know I don't necessarily need you to share them or say them out loud, but just think think along the lines of the kinds of thought pictures that um, that the, that God the Father evokes in your thoughts. I'm doing it as well. It's okay. I'm, I haven't faded out. I'm just uh, bringing all of those thoughts to mind. And I'm, I don't want to uh, I don't want to sort of dilute your ideas and thoughts with mine. But um, and now now that we've thought about that, I want you to think about Jesus Christ the Son. And I want you to think about the kind of words and concepts and, and personality that you associate with Jesus Christ. And once again, you know, you don't need to say them out loud, but, um, but just what do we think of? And I guess with Jesus, it's, um, you know, our, our ideas and thoughts will have been diluted because there's lots of, you know, Jesus stereotypes that we, we have, you know, rammed down our throat by, by mass media. Um, but try and put as many of them as many of them to the side as possible, and and think about the Jesus of the Bible, the words and the actions that you you read about in the Bible. Now that you've got those two two thoughts, compare them. What are the differences? How similar are those those two perceptions of um, God the Father and Jesus the Son? And while we're uh, while we're comparing those those pictures, um, let's read in uh, Hebrews chapter one. Here we'll start at verse one. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, so all through the Old Testament, you know, the prophets were were being inspired by God, and those prophets then went and spoke to spoke to people. He has, that God, he has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, so this is the Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I just want to go back to the express image of his person. The express image of his person can also be stated as 
the manifested representation of his character. So all of those ideas that you thought about Christ, Jesus, the Son, they are the express or manifested representation of the character of God, the express image of his person. And, and that's borne out also in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 where it says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And also in Colossians 1 verse 15 it says, talking about Christ again, it says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So the point that the the Bible is trying to make here to us is that if we want to know God's true nature, we don't need to look any further than the nature of Jesus Christ, which is borne out in the Scriptures. So what can we find out about Jesus' nature? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. And in verse uh, 17, let's start in verse uh, 15 actually. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all and he charged them that they should not make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Now, a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament were about things that Jesus was either going to do or that were going to be done to him. So when you think about all of the prophecies of, say, the crucifixion, Those were things that were going to happen to Jesus. When you think about the prophecies about the things that Jesus was going to achieve, they were things Jesus was going to do. But there's very few, very few prophecies that actually deal with the nature of Jesus Christ. But we're about to read one here. This is, uh, this is a prophecy in Isaiah, which you can go off and find for yourself if you need to. But here it says in verse 19, he shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So this is one of those few precious prophecies that's about the nature of Jesus Christ and the nature, therefore, of God. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. Now what that means is, and I'm sure that, you know, we're all aware of people who put themselves forward. You know, whether they be politicians or, or Frank Walker from National Tiles or whoever it is, like people, we're all aware of people who put themselves forward. We hear their voices in the streets, whether it's on advertising, whether it's on mass media or Twitter or whatever, they're putting themselves forward And yet we've just read here about Jesus who said he charged them that they should not make him known. And it goes on to say in verse 20, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. Now, those are kind of odd odd descriptions to us. Like, what does does all that mean? Well, for people who lived in in, in an agrarian society, as these people would have, 
they, they were very familiar with working with flax and turning it into linen and, and they were very familiar with, um, you know, wicks that were made out of, you know, flax fibres or, or um, how easy it was to use reeds to, you know, plait a basket or something. And they, they would have known that if a, a rude, a rude, a reed got bruised, <laughs> yeah, uh, if, if a reed got bruised, that if it was at a particular time of its, of its shaping, it would actually tear pretty easily. And that's, that, the, your basket's gonna be useless after that. So that's why they used to go through this whole process of picking reeds that were at the right time. But what they would have known is a bruised reed was pretty easy to break. And here it says a bruised reed shall he not break. And he goes on to say the smoking flax shall he not quench. Now once again, if you had a little, a little flax fibre that was your candle wick or something, or maybe it was sort of infused with oil. They didn't have candles back then. Um, but uh, if you had that, and, and, and the wick had gone, like the fire had gone out, flame had gone out, it was very easy just to quench it and, and take away the, the, smoke, the smoke, just like that. And we all know how easy it is to quench you know, a candle sort of fibre. So this is talking about the nature of someone who is not going to force himself on people. That's what these scriptures refer to, and 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 I guess we we can start to see one of the one of the aspects of the nature of Jesus Christ, which reveals the nature of God, and that is that God has given each and every one of us a free will, which cannot and will not be taken away. God has the power, without a doubt, to enforce His will on us if He chose. He has the power to come down and go, you believe in me and you're going to believe in me and you're going to follow me and it would be the case. But God has also enshrined a free will choice for each and every one of us so that we must choose to follow him. Because as I said, he could just turn us into mindless robots if he wanted to that did nothing but worship him. But here we read, that he does not force himself on us in any way. He makes the invitation to us and it's entirely up to us whether we want to follow that or not. So, one little point about Jesus' nature. Let's turn to Nahum chapter 1. So, Nahum chapter 1 and in verse 2, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath, or wrath, as the Americans say, for his enemies. The the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and he drieth up all the rivers. Bashan, Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world, and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Now I have to admit that when I posed the first part of that, that sort of little mental activity to, to you before, that 
in many cases and in, and in, in many ways, this is what I think of as Father God. And as I said, that, that might be a, a sort of a personal admission and you guys might have thought of, you know, the ever-loving creator who looks after us and, and holds us in the palm of his hand. For me, and maybe it's got something to do with, you know, the, the way I've been brought up, but the Father God or the spectre of the Father God, the idea, the concept, the words, quite often veers fairly heavily into this kind of territory, which is a very... A very Catholic, and and and, uh, and unfortunately, that's that's something which uh, which has become a, a mainstay of the the Catholic faith is that God is a vengeful, angry God, and He just wants to take vengeance. He wants to strike people down, and He wants to He wants to melt rocks, and He wants to He wants to impose Himself on every situation. John chapter thirteen, Gospel of John, and in verse thirty four. Now, this is in red in my Bible, which means these are the words of Jesus Christ himself. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Here we see a little bit more of Jesus Christ's nature. This commandment is entirely wrapped up in love. Firstly, as Christ loved us, so we should love others. And in fact, he goes as far as to say, this is how people are going to know that you're one of mine. If you really genuinely want to be a true Christian, you actually need to show this. If you have love one to another. Now we know that the concept of love has been, unfortunately, railroaded into something which is entirely different from what God intended love to be as far as sort of the mainstream perception of what love is and generally love is love now is about never ever causing offence to anybody especially the Twitter bots that's what love is now don't offend anybody and just be genuinely loving to everybody that's that's kind of how how it's now Jesus actually preached a very different love to that Jesus said, greater love had no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the love that Jesus was talking about. So so we we know that love is tied up in self-sacrifice. Love is tied up in, in sometime, and sometimes that self-sacrifice might be putting your own pride to one side and going to someone and saying, hey mate, I love you enough to tell you that there's something going wrong, that you're heading down the wrong path, that the Lord wants to direct you away from the path you're going. And that might be the greatest act of love that you can ever show to someone. It might might feel terrible inside when you're doing it, but it also may be the greatest uh, greatest uh, exponent or the, the greatest way you can express God's love is by doing that unpleasant thing. And that's the part that the world has forgotten. The world doesn't like being told unpleasant truths. And so let's put all the unpleasant truths away. But then, how do we contrast that with all, with all of the vengeance and fury and anger that we just read about in Nahum? If we've, if we've read that Jesus Christ is the express image of the nature of God, and then we've just read in Nahum that, that he just wants to hurl molten rocks at people, or something like that, I don't know, you can go back and read it for yourself, why, why do we have this disconnect? 
why do we have this this dissonance between what Jesus is clearly expressed and who God is clearly expressed. And I believe the disconnect comes because we attempt to put God in a human box with human motivations. It's convenient for us to think of God as another bloke who we can kind of project all of our all of our conclusions onto. God's doing that because God's being angry because he's a petulant little so-and-so. God's being angry because he likes being angry. Those are the kinds of things we can kind of put on God because of our human perceptions, because we're used to putting people in a human box or putting characters in a human box. Classic example, Richard Dawkins, who's many of you will be familiar with who Richard Dawkins is, he once uh, posed the query that if God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? And on a natural level, you can see there's lots of people who go, yeah, good question, that's going to floor them. Why is he such a... Pain. Why is he, why is he always messing around so much? Why, why does he want to mess around with our lives and cause us agony and drive us through all of this? Why? Because there's no God. That's the conclusion they come to. They come to the conclusion that if, if that's the kind of nature of God, then he can't possibly be a God worth respecting or, or even existing. But Mr. Dawkins, and sometimes in our own thinking, we miss a key but tragic truth. God doesn't need anything from us. God doesn't need our obedience. God doesn't need our sacrifice. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our recognition. God is ultimately advantaged already. There is no possible way that anything we can do can benefit him or improve his situation one iota. There is nothing we can do which will benefit God. And of the whole human experiment of God's relationship with mankind, God does not stand to benefit one cracker. He's already perfect. He's already got absolutely everything he needs. And we tend to put on God the fact that God has a need for vengeance or a need for sacrifice because that's how we understand things. Because we're human and we like to think of things in those terms but God thinks about them in an entirely different way. Acts chapter 17 just in case you think I'm making this up. Now this is where Paul was at a place called Mars Hill where lots of philosophers gathered and they used to talk about all kinds of ideas and and who believed in which God from which pantheon and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and there was an altar there, just in case they'd missed one, there was an altar there to the unknown God. 
and Paul happened to sort of stumble upon this altar there to the unknown God. And uh, he was he was talking to the, the the people who were gathered around discussing their uh, discussing their the philosophies and whatnot. Uh, he says in verse 23, this is Paul speaking, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything. God doesn't need a single thing. And he definitely doesn't need what we can offer him or what we think we can offer him. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Let's turn to Job chapter 22 just to reinforce the point. Now, there's a couple of speeches in Job where guys were talking to Job and they clearly missed the mark. You know, in fact, the Lord corrected them for it afterward. And one of those fellows was named Eliphaz the Temanite. Now, we're going to actually read something he said. He starts off well. He starts off by saying something which is good and then he kind of goes downhill from there. But the bit that he starts off with is what we're going to, what we're going to focus on here. In verse 1 of Job chapter 22, then Eliphaz the Temanite, or Eliphaz, um, or Aliphaz, as he'd been called in uh, Ballarat, uh, Aliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? Just back on that bit, is it any gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? And while we're in Job, let's turn over to Job chapter 35 to a guy who made a whole lot more sense and his name was Elihu and pretty much everything he said was spot on. So Job chapter 35 and once again, Verse 6, If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Same point, made by someone who had a whole lot more authority on the situation. The point is, as we read these, and there's, a, there's another scripture that I, I might actually just quickly share with you. I had it, uh, had it here somewhere. Uh, there's another scripture along similar lines. And I guess I'm, I'm just wanting to make sure that, you know, you don't think I'm making this up. Um, this, is, this is God talking to Israel. He says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually for me, before me. Sorry, I will take no bullock out of thy house nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and all the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Now, if that's the case, if these scriptures that we've just read in in Acts chapter 17, and and then in uh, Job here, these couple of verses, 
And it really is reinforcing that God doesn't actually need us for anything. He doesn't need anything from us. Then it holds that absolutely everything God does, if he doesn't need anything himself, absolutely everything God does, absolutely everything God expresses, the benefit must be for us. He can't be benefited anymore. It's impossible to be any more advantaged than he is. He's already at maximum 100% advantage. There ain't any more that can be added to him. So everything God does then must be for us. So that then gives us a context where we, wherewith we can assess God's actions differently. Because normally, as I said, we would assess God's actions based on him being another human being with human frailties and human needs. God has put himself well out of that league. He's not another human being with human frailties and human, human needs. He's already 100% powered up. He can't get any better. He can't be any more benefited. So everything that he does is for us including the vengeance and the anger. Because God doesn't benefit one iota from an expression of vengeance or anger. But there have been countless people down through history, myself included, who have benefited from a clip over the ear from God when we've really needed it. And so God does express vengeance or anger or jealousy as it's required, but it's entirely for our benefit. It's not because he's insecure. It's not because he has a need for something at all. Anything he expresses in our direction is entirely for our benefit. And that's why Jesus Christ had to be sacrificed, as opposed to God just forgiving all our sins, Because if God just forgave all our sins, we're the ones who aren't able to accept that forgiveness. Because we understand that where there's been sin, there needs to be sacrifice. We understand that as human beings. If you've done something wrong, and let's say, let's put it into the, the terms of modern law, let's say policemen everywhere started just forgiving everyone immediately they did anything wrong. Would we have a society that's worth living in? In about 24 hours, the place would go to the pack. It would be uninhabitable. So we understand as human beings that there needs to be a penalty for doing things wrong. And in fact, it's one of the central tenets of our our society is that there must be a penalty for doing something wrong, otherwise the system falls to pieces. So we understand that. There must be a penalty for something being wrong. But we're not able to pay the penalty for our own sin. So there must have been, there must, for our, for our needs, there must be a perfect sacrifice to free us from our sin. And it's only the perfect sacrifice that can free us from sin. And that's unfortunately where Mr. Dawkins misses the point. Because the alternative is that there is no wrong. If there's never a penalty, there can't actually be anything wrong. And yet we all know there are many, many actions which some of which have even impacted us in our lives. 
where there are many, many actions and they might only be minutes in our life which can affect us forever after. But those actions need to be curtailed as much as possible. There needs to be penalties for sin, but there also needs to be a way out of those penalties. There needs to be forgiveness, and forgiveness from God can only come after there's a perfect sacrifice, which is exactly what Jesus Christ fulfilled for us. Jeremiah chapter 7. Now part of the reason I wanted to particularly pick out a few Old Testament um, verses today is that, as I said, I quite often end up, when I'm thinking about God in the Old Testament, I quite often end up sort of just by default verging off towards that vengeful, rock-melting, angry, lasers out of his eyes God, right? That's what I quite often go back towards. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 19. Do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast and upon the trees of the field and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. There he is. There's that angry, vengeful God who's pouring out anger on everyone. And it shall not be quenched. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk you in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. Here we see more of God's will towards us that it may be well unto you. He said, I didn't want the sacrifices and stuff. Sure, I put them in place so that you could understand the gravity of your position. But that's not what I wanted. This thing I commanded them, obey my voice and I will be your God. And you shall be my people and walk you in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. This God who we put in a human box with all of his human frailties and human needs that we reflect onto him, coming from us obviously, he's not like that. He's Jesus Christ. He's the character of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ wanted things to be well with us. And in fact, he wanted it so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself to the nth degree for us that it may be well with us. That's the God who we deal with on a daily basis. That's the God who, even though he is perfect and doesn't need us, still has made a way whereby we can have a place with him purely for our benefit. Once again, when you look at the whole plan and the story arc of God with man, you sort of think, well, maybe God thinks he's going to get something out of this. God ain't going to get nothing out of this. He doesn't need anything out of this. The only reason he's put it in place is so that we can benefit. 
He's put this whole thing in place so that at the end of it there might be some who turned to him and took advantage of what it is that he's offering to each and every one of us. Our salvation. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Actually, no, while we're on the way, let's turn to Acts chapter 1 first because this sort of references something that we're about to read in Second Peter. So Acts chapter 1. This is a, a part of Jesus' story which we hold very dear as a people. This is a part of Jesus' story when he's just about to be raised up and glorified as is promised to us and we read about that last week um, that uh, Jesus Christ will in, come in lo- like manner as he left and, uh, and he will bring lots of good stuff with him. Just before he did rise up, he left his disciples with some incredibly important um, advice. And uh, in verse 4 it says, And being assembled together with them, that's his disciples, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard from me. Now, we've spoken a lot at length about the promise here. Uh, it goes on to say, For John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And we know that the disciples in their unregenerate state, they'd been baptised in water, but they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit and therefore they were not truly born again. And uh, Jesus here is talking about something which is going to happen in a, not many days hence, in the future. He's talking about something which is going to happen fairly soon. And as we know, uh, about sort of 40 days, uh, no, about seven days on from this, um, about seven days on, they received the Holy Spirit and... Uh, and Jesus went on to say, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. And if we go over to verse 39, Acts chapter 2 verse 39, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. There's that word promise again. That sets the scene for what we're going to read now over in Second Peter. So, just to recap. We quite often have ideas about the nature of God and some of them might not be helpful to our perceptions of God. We might have a slightly different understanding or, or, or concept of who Jesus Christ is. The Bible tells us that the nature of Jesus Christ is the express nature or the express character of God. One of the main reasons I believe Jesus came to be on the earth as a man was to give us a concept that we could comprehend of who God is and what kind of nature God has. We know that Jesus was the express image of the person of God. We know that God or Jesus was not going to force himself on anybody but he was going to preserve the free will of everyone. We know that the expressions of God's vengeance and fury and anger are only for our benefit. Not because it advantages him. It's not because he feels better after he's had a good dummy spit. That's not how God works. God expresses things toward us for our good that it may be well with us. And Jesus Christ came as the total typification of all of God's will to show us what God's will for us is, and that is that we might all be saved. And in fact, it's on the page in front of us. Uh, it's, it's, that's not the verse I was going to read, but in Second Peter chapter 3 it says, "The Lord is in verse 9 it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, would, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the will of God. God doesn't want to send anyone to hell. At all. Zero. He would have all to come to repentance. That's his will. But we're going to go back here to Second Peter chapter 2, I think we are. Second Peter chapter 1, sorry. And in verse, uh, verse 2, Second Peter chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 2. So Peter says here, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, the chiefest of which is the Holy Ghost that we just read about in Acts chapter 1 and 2. That was the promise of the Father. So when we're reading about exceeding great and precious promises, put the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the new life that the Holy Spirit brings to us, put that number one. That's one of, that's number one where it comes to exceeding great and precious promises. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. By the Holy Spirit we're able to take on the nature of God. And yes, that will come with a degree of self-sacrifice because that is the nature of God. Yes, it will come with a bit of looking out for other people because as we've known, the nature of God is that he can't be advantaged anymore so he's always looking out for the, for the, goodly, for the goodness of other people. That it may be well with other people. And that becomes our nature. When we receive the Holy Ghost, we start looking around to other people not to look down on them and go, eh, look at that person, they're doing it all wrong. But we look, look around and we go, how can we help anyone? Is there anything we can do that we can help any, anyone, else in, anyone else with? We take on us the divine nature, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We know that God's not willing that any should perish. We just read that. But that all should come to repentance. That doesn't mean that God's not willing that some should perish. Because there unfortunately will be some who don't want to come to repentance. But that's entirely their choice. And the consequences that flow from that is entirely their choice. Unfortunately, that's one of the unpleasant truths that in loving other people, we need to go out and tell people. That doesn't mean we stand on a street corner with a megaphone saying, you're all going to burn! That's not going to win anyone. But it does mean that those who we have dealings with, those doors we knock on, the people we invite to our events, even if it's learning new choruses to, to, to glorify the Lord with, it, it doesn't matter what, we have, what contact we have with people, our contact should be using the divine nature that we've been given through the exceeding great and precious promise of the Holy Ghost. It allows us to express something which is beyond our natural human frailties, which is where we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. As I said before, if policemen everywhere suddenly stopped enforcing any kind of penalty of any kind, the world would just be swept away in its, in, in its lawlessness and in its lusts. That's the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now, in many ways, it's held in check by our society. 
because we all understand that it's fairly destructive to head down that road. Carte blanche, just everyone do whatever you want. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure we all know that that's going to lead to a heck of a lot of heartache for a lot of people. So as a society, we've agreed, okay, let's not do that. Let's kind of have some structure. Let's kind of have some rules. Let's have some things which are socially acceptable and, and not. And unfortunately, those socially acceptable things change with the seasons. God doesn't change. But we see here that whatever, whatever shape that corruption's in in this world, which whatever way those natural ambitions are expressed, we call them lusts, whatever way we've escaped them by being partakers of the divine nature. Now that's a big call. What we, we've become, the nature of God, good luck. Well, the Holy Spirit allows us to do that, but it gives us a barometer, doesn't it? We can look at ourselves and we can assess ourselves and go, now what's driving my actions? Is it my nature? Is it my frailties? My needs? Or is it the nature of God that's driving my actions? And it allows us to adjust. If we see ourselves heading down the path of our, our natural nature, I know that's, that's probably not correct grammar, but if we see, if we see ourselves heading down the path of our natural man, then we can go, whoa, hold up. The Holy Spirit's given me something better than this. The exceeding great and precious promise of the Holy Spirit has made me a partaker of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that I've fully attained, fully obtained, fully attained unto the divine nature. And we all know that we still have our frailties. And the Lord knows that we're dust. The Lord knows that we have this treasure in earthen vessels and he's made a way for that to be okay until he returns and perfects us all. But he's given us the Holy Spirit whereby we can look at and adjust our actions every day. And if we're walking in the Spirit, that gets a whole lot easier. If we're neglecting the Holy Spirit, then guess who's pulling the reins all the time? The natural person, with all of its needs and frailties. And that's when we need to go, hold up, I need to stir up the Holy Spirit. I need to walk in the ways of the Spirit. What a great thing it is to be able to even just have a taste of what it is to know the divine nature. Number one, we can see it exemplified in Jesus Christ as we read through the scriptures. Number two, we can feel it in ourselves. And I'm sure those of us who are filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in the ways of the Spirit we have felt many times where we've felt motivated to do something which we know goes against our natural nature, goes against our natural character, put it that way. We find ourselves going out of our way to do something, to help somebody, to say something even, and it might even be something which is perceived as, as maybe nasty if it's, if it's taken, taken wrongly. You know, how dare you judge me for, for my actions? Well, I'm not, I'm just trying to bring you towards God. But how good is it when we're walking in the Spirit and we feel the divine nature controlling us? That's our ideal. That's what we work towards. And the, and the hope is that we should be like that way more than we should be like the other way. That we should be continually walking in the Spirit because the promise is that when we're walking in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And all people said, Amen. Amen. 